are listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. Though located in the heart of the Silicon Valley, you will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival preaching from the pulpit of North Valley Baptist Church. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. The Church of Pergamos tonight, and it's really appropriate. It's amazing how the Bible's as up-to-date as tomorrow morning's headlines in the newspaper. And it just meets the need of the hour. And I was studying on this, and I was assigned this a couple of weeks ago. And to be honest with you, I just never got a message out of this chapter or out of this text. I just got a lot of notes written in the margin of my Bible. So what I'm going to do tonight is just treat you like, like I do my radio broadcast. We're just going to go through these verses, if that's okay. And we'll just make application. I mean, I'll have some introduction and things of that nature, Lord willing. But uh, more than giving you information, I want God to speak to your heart tonight. Man, I want God to speak to my heart tonight. It's more than a want to. It's a need to. I need God to speak to my heart. How many of you had to work today? Anybody have to work today? Wouldn't it be good to end our work day with God speaking to your heart? Well, let's read it tonight. Revelation chapter number 2, verse number 12. If you're able to stand as we always do here, let's stand and we'll read through this quickly. And then you can be seated. The Bible said unto the angel, the church in Pergamos, right? These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works and where thou dwellest. Even where Satan's seed is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where Antipas was my faithful martyr. Now, I don't know this, but it could be that Antipas is one of the first martyrs killed not by a pagan government, but by a pagan church. He might be a martyr at the hands of a state church. Who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I'll come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Let's pray. Lord, I pray you'd speak to our hearts. Thank you for this letter you wrote to this local church. And thank you for the application we can make for us in 2020. I pray that you'd help us to see the truths in these verses of Scripture. I pray that you would take my thoughts and mesh them together into a message for the folks tonight. I need your power and pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I'd say the book of Revelation is probably one of the most hated, one of the most misapplied, one of the most misunderstood, and one of the most maligned books in the Bible. In fact, I've traveled enough to know that if there's a kook in a church, that kook wants to ask a question about what's happening in the book of Revelation. Everybody's wondering what in the world this is talking about, but it's under attack. And I believe there's cause for that if you really think about it. Why would this book come under attack? Well, it tells us about the triumph of the church. And you know the devil doesn't want to hear anything about the triumph of the church. Not only does it tell us about the triumph of the church, it teaches us about the ultimate triumph of the Jew as well. And the devil doesn't want to hear anything about that. Better than that, even the Bible that tells us in the book of Revelation about the defeat of the devil. One of these days he'll be cast into a lake of fire. Say amen right there. That'll make a Baptist shout on a Wednesday night. 
This book tells us about the judgment of the nations, the end of the universe, and ultimately it takes us into eternity. This book in the Bible is attacked. It's attacked by medical doctors. It's attacked by psychiatrists. It's attacked by psychologists. It's attacked by liberal theologians. You say, why would a liberal theologian attack this? Because this book goes against the grain of ecumenical theology. The ecumenical theology is this, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. You ever heard somebody say that before? Or maybe they like this phrase, let's do some kingdom building. And this goes all against that theology because if you rightly divide your Bible and understand Bible dispensations, you understand there's not going to be peace on earth and goodwill toward men until Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom and rules and reigns for a thousand years. You and I aren't building any kind of kingdom. We're to build a work for God through the local church. This is the age of the church. Thank God for the local church. In fact, that's what we're studying right now are seven letters written to seven literal, visible, local churches. You read the book of Revelation and you find that number seven throughout, seven trumpets, seven vials, all these different things, seven letters to seven churches. Seven's the number of completion. The book of Revelation completes the body, if you will, of inspired and preserved text. Now, you can take these seven letters and you can look at them, as already has been mentioned, as an overview of the entire church age. That would take us from Calvary up until the rapture of the church. Now, you study it out, you'd see Ephesus. That would cover the apostolic period. That's New Testament times, the book of Acts, and, and from there. The uh, church of Smyrna, that would cover the time of Roman persecution. I'll skip Pergamos and come back. Thyatira, that's a period of Roman control. The church in Sardis, that's a time of Roman exodus when the church leaves Rome. The uh, church of Philadelphia, that'd be a missions era where world missions is emphasized. The church in Laodicea, that's where we're at right now. And that's an indifferent, culturally relevant, cold, lukewarm church. Now tonight we're going to look at the church in Pergamos. The church in Pergamos is no longer suffering under pagan Rome. Now they're uh, suffering under papal Rome. If you study this out in the view of history, this would cover that period from about 325 A.D. up to about 600 A.D. In 325 A.D., a man named Constantine married the church, if you will, to the Roman government. Now, from this, eventually, and by the way, just a disclaimer, this is a Baptist church and a Baptist Bible study. But from this, down the road, we ultimately get our Roman Catholic church. So you'll find that paganism begins to mix with Christianity. It's interesting that in this era also comes men like Origen and others who give us the manuscripts out of Alexandria for every perverted, corrupt Bible version in your Bible bookstore tonight. I'm talking about your NIV texts and ASV texts and RSV. All of those come out, everybody all right, during this period of time. The church is married to the world. Now, as you start reading in the first chapter of the book of Revelation, John is suffering for his faith. If you take any kind of stand for Jesus at all, you need to be ready to suffer for your faith. In fact, if the world applauds your Christian life, you're doing it wrong. If the world applauds your church, then it's doing it wrong. John is persecuted. They take John. I'm talking about John the Beloved. John who uh, laid his head on Jesus' breast. 
They take John and put him in a big pot of oil and boil the flesh off of his body. Now that doesn't kill him. They wished it would have. Then they take John and put him on the Isle of Patmos in isolation on a desolate island. So that's where John is. John's not living in a high-rise hotel somewhere. John's not writing from a plush office chair in a parsonage. John is on the Isle of Patmos. He is suffering for standing for the faith. But what I like about John is the testimony of John in verse 10 of chapter 1. He said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. You know what that means? That means John made a conscious decision that he would be in tune with the heart of God and expect to hear from the mouth of God. He heard from God on the Isle of Patmos because he decided that he wanted to. Did you ever think why it might be some folks come to church and they never hear anything from God? Some folks come to church and they never get moved by God. Some folks come to church and they never get stirred by God. And then somebody else hears the same message, the same singing, sits in the same building and God gets all over them. I tell you why it is. They made a decision. I'm going to look for God at church today. We can't just show up and expect to flip the light switch on and have God change our life. You're going to have to get pumped and primed before you come. And that's what John did. He made a decision. I might be on this island. It's not of very good circumstances, but I'm going to go ahead and decide in my heart, I'm going to look for God even on the Isle of Patmos. And you know what happens? He gets to see him. All of a sudden, they're on that aisle. He hears the voice and gets to see the glorified, resurrected Savior on the Isle of Patmos. He does not see him as the Lamb of God, but he gets to see the Lion of Judah. I think it'd be worth it to make the decision that I want to hear from God if it means I might get to see God when I show up at church. If you're waiting on me to preach it up, then you're going to be missing out. I, I don't know. I, I, always told, I always told our church, don't wait till you get here. I'm not a pep rally leader. I'm not a cheerleader. Aren't you happy about that? Boy, that'd be a visual, wouldn't it? That's not my job. My, I preached this one of the first sermons I preached here. My job is not to stir you up. Your job is not to stir me up. The truth ought to stir us up enough just to we can have revival whether anybody else does or not. We come to this letter to the church in Pergamos, and we'll just begin reading through these verses and we'll make application. The church in Ephesus was a commercial center. The church in Smyrna was a port city. Pergamos is a religious, cultural center. I want you to think about this. Pergamos is a capital city. A Pergamos is a, a, a cultural city. And worst of all, Pergamos is a cult city. It's a very religious place. Verse number 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write. Now let me just make comment on that. This letter is being written to the angel of the church of Pergamos. Now that word angel, the word is the word messenger. And I wrote down in my Bible, preacher, when's the last time you heard from God directly? And I wrote that down to convict my heart. But I want to ask you the same question. When's the last time you heard from God directly? I mean, not secondhand, not from somebody else, but God spoke to your heart in your prayer closet, in your Bible study, spoke to your heart directly. He always speaks. We just need to listen. The next phrase, these things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Now, what do you think that is? That's the word of God. Hebrews 4 and verse number 12 references that. Verse 13, he said, I know thy works. Now, that's an encouraging thing to somebody who's actually working for God. 
That ought not scare anybody who's actually serving the Lord. Now, that would make a man nervous, the sort of sitting on the sideline watching other folks serve the Lord. But if you're on the battlefield for the Lord, that's an encouraging thing. Man, he sees your labor. He sees your work. You might serve in a part of this ministry that nobody ever sees. I mean, they don't ever see what you do for the Lord. You might be here after the lights are turned out and you're just cleaning the building. Maybe you work a bus route and nobody sees that. I mean, you're doing something that nobody, but can I say the Lord sees it. Thank God we don't serve for an audience of a thousand. We serve for an audience of one. And I'm glad he says, I know thy works. He sees their performance, if you will. You go on, he says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest. He knows their performance and he even knows the place where they're serving, even where Satan's seat is. Now, I wish we had the teens in here because I think this could be a motivating thing for a young man. Aren't you glad there was some young man somewhere or some man somewhere along the line that had enough faith in God and fire in his belly, even though Pergamos was that corrupt and a cultural center, he thought, I'm going to plant a church in Pergamos. Isn't that awesome? There's a local church in a place like that. Can I say that we ought to get over this thing where we go to the easy place to serve God and the most opportune place to serve God? We need to go right there to the front lines of hell and plant some churches and serve God. I thank God for foreign missions and we need to do more of it, but I thank God for these folks who will go in America and plant churches in these cities that we have in, in America today. He said, I know where you're at, Pergamos, a cultural place a worldly place, a religious place. If you study it out, I've studied this this week and last week, Pergamos was home to that Babylonian mystery religion. And we're going to find that they worship things that were, I mean, almost that we couldn't even speak about in church. Oh, fornication was rampant. Immorality was rampant. In fact, there's even a type of Satan worship going on in this city. And that's where that local church is. I understand and I hear it all the time from people that don't live here that I, I knew on the East Coast about how wicked it is here. But can I say, it's nothing like it probably was in Pergamos. And if they can do a work for God there, I'm glad we can still do a work for God here. Until Jesus comes, there's still hope to build a church and do a work for God. Watch what he says. He says, thou holdest fast my name. What's that mean? They're not denying the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. During this time period, there'd be Gnostics and others, philosophers would come on the scene and deny the deity of Christ. They didn't do that. They held fast to that doctrine. Not only did they not deny his name, they held fast to his faith as well. They held to his deity and they held to the doctrine of Christ. Thank God for that. By the way, that's why it's important that we don't drop the banner at this church. We've got to keep holding to those doctrines. We can't depend on some other church across town to do it. Hey, listen, we need to make the decision as a church that we're going to keep preaching the fundamentals of the faith and believe this book. Not going to let it slip. We're still going to preach the blood of Christ is what it takes to cover, cover and atone for the sins of men. Still going to preach that baptism comes after salvation, right? Uh, still going to preach that once you're saved, you can't get unsaved. Hello? Still going to preach that the speaking in an unknown language is not for the church today. Well, welcome to the First Pentecostal Church of Santa Clara. All right, very good. Let's move on. I didn't get too many amens on that one. Look what it says. Thou hast denied my faith even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr. That word Antipas means against everything. This man just stood against everything. He died for his faith. He was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. The Bible tells us in the book of Smyr- in the letter to the church in Smyrna that Satan had a synagogue, he had an outpost. But here's Satan's seat. This is like ground zero for this wickedness. 
That's where this church is working. That's where that church is serving, an illustrious city, a religious city, a library in this city with 200,000 volumes going against the doctrine of the Bible. That word pergamus, I said, means marriage. And that's what we're going to see happen with this church. In the next few verses, the, the Lord lays it out, the problem he has with this local church. And I want us to consider it here uh, this evening. Look at verse 14. He said, I have a few things against thee. By the way, you ought to be against a few things. He said, I've got a few things against thee. Because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. Now, where do you find Balaam in the Bible? Old Testament, Right. Numbers 22 through Numbers 25. You remember the story of Balaam? Balaam was hired, if you will, by the king of the Moabites. He wanted Balaam to curse the children of Israel. Balaam could not curse the children of Israel because God would not allow him to. It was an impossibility. So he teaches the king of Moab, if you will, how to get around that. And the king of Moab convinces the Israelites to intermarry with the Moabite women. What happens is he breaks down their separation and they get unequally yoked together with lost people. The Bible talks about in Deuteronomy how God cursed the Moabites. That's the doctrine of Balaam. What is it? It's yoking up with the world. So this is where that church is. This is the indictment that the Lord has who's in the midst of that church against that church. They held fast his name. They still preach Jesus. You ever heard that? Just preach Jesus. We're gospel centered. They still preach Jesus. But the problem was they were assimilating. They went from salvation to stagnation to assimilation with the world. Little by little, they began to adopt the world's philosophy. They began to adopt the world's culture. They began to adopt the world's uh, 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 look, if you will. They began to adopt the world's methodology. They began to adopt these things from society, and they got yoked up with the world and lost their power. They had pomp and circumstance, but no more power and conviction. They got married up with the world. Can I say you cannot marry the church with the world and have the church survive? When you marry the church with the world, the church dies and the world thrives. It doesn't happen. You can't yoke those two things up together. They tried to marry holiness to unholiness. They tried to marry purity to impurity. They tried to yoke up godliness to ungodliness. And what they did is they traded out soul winning for social justice, if you will. They traded out prayer meetings for having some kind of standing in society. They traded out revival for being more relevant to the day. And the Lord looks at them and says, I'm against that, yoking up with the world. Now, I was looking online, just studying for this, so I Googled it. And I went on YouTube and I looked up sermons about the church at Pergamos so I could have something to preach tonight, you know. But anyway, it would shock you, the emergent, flat-out liberal I mean, obviously, worldly, look like a boy band reject preachers who are preaching on the church of Pergamos compromising with the world. I was looking at the computer like, duh, bro, that's you. I mean, it looked like they were wearing like their seventh grade daughter's bedazzled blue jeans. Hello. Yoked up with the world. Now you wonder why is it that that church didn't see revival? Well, the same reason why a lot of churches in this generation don't have revival because they've gotten yoked up with 
the world. That's the doctrine of Balaam. They also have the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. That's the clergy ruling over uh, the lay people, if you will. I was reading today in this book, and I normally would never do this, but this was good, so I, I, he, he can write better than I can preach. I want to read you a little bit from this book. He said, this man said, I'm tired of complacent Christianity. I'm declaring open season on our smug spiritual complacency and amnesia. We'd rather squat in our rubber foam pew and hear a more pleasant dissertation on Psalm 23 for the thousandth time than hear a man fresh from audience with an eternal God. The New Testament church was not electronic, but it was electrifying. The church fresh from the upper room invaded the world. Now the church is in the supper room invaded by the world. The New Testament church should not depend on a moral majority, but they had a holy minority. The church right now has more fashion than passion. It's more pathetic than prophetic. It's more superficial than supernatural. The church the apostles ministered in was a suffering church. Today, we have a sufficient church. Events in the spirit-controlled church were amazing. In this day, they're just amusing. He went on to say, we need revival. We need revival God's way. Spirit-born, heaven-directed, earth-shaking, hell-robbing revival. It's not just wanted, it's imperative. We need revival. He said, God bless the man in the White House. He said, but it's not the man in the White House we need. It's the man on the throne that we need to intervene. And can I say, that's where we're at in America today. A cold, complacent, casual, callous, carnal, worldly church. And we pray and we beg and we sing, God, send the rain. God, let the breeze blow. God, send revival. But as long as we're married to the world, there's no hope of revival. This world is not my home. But it's my homie, they could say, in those hip churches, right? Let me read you some verses on, on, on the world. I, I printed these off just a minute. Love not the world, and do the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Here's another one. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let me give you this one. Mark 8, 36. For what shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world but, and lose his own soul? John 16, 33. These things have I spoken to you that, you, in, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Titus 2. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. I'm glad we're under grace. Say amen right there. But watch what it does to you, teaching us the denying ungodliness and worldly lust. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. First John 2, 17, the world passeth away and the lust thereof. James 4, 4, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? I was reading these verses today and thought this thing's much more serious than sometimes we think it is. That's why we don't just sing what we want to sing. That's how come we don't just dress how we want to dress. That's how come we don't just talk like we want to talk and go wherever we want to go. Why? Because my Bible tells me that if I'm a friend to this world, I am the enemy of God. Oh, there's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. And I want to be a friend to him. And I can't be a friend with him if I'm in love with this world. That's why we have a pulpit. That church in Pergamos shredded out a wooden pulpit for a marble throne. They traded out sackcloth and ashes and animal skins for silk robes with gold threading and a big title and a hat on top of their head. That's why we need an old-fashioned church, because it's biblical. Have it your way. You can go to Burger King and have it your way, but when we come here, we've got to have it God's way. 
Look at it, he said, so that, verse 15. So hast thou, thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent. What's that mean? Get right. Change it. Turn around. Go a different direction. Repent or else I'll come unto thee quickly and I'll fight against him with the sword of my mouth. He told us he had the word of God and now he said, I'll use the word of God to indict you. Verse 17, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now I want to see this to him that overcometh. Well, I give to eat of the hidden manna. By the way, it's worth it to be faithful. We'll, we'll explain some of these things in just a second. It's worth it to stay faithful. And we'll give him a white stone. And in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Now, I don't know what that hidden manna is, but I do know this. It means that they're going to be nourished and satisfied by God, however it would be. In that pagan society, in that compromised society, if they'll just stay faithful and not yoke up to the world, they're going to have spiritual insight, discernment, and nourishment that others wouldn't know anything about. But not that, just that. He said, I'll give you a white stone. Now, there's a lot of different opinions of what that can mean, but there's three, three that I really liked. Back in Bible times, if you were to go to the Roman Forum and court was in session, a man would stand there under a question, guilty or innocent. And from what I read, they would give the jurors two stones, a black stone and a white stone. And when it was time to make the decision, the jurors would walk up to that urn and they would drop a stone in. If they thought he was guilty, they'd drop a black stone in. If they thought he was innocent, they'd drop a white stone in. Then, after they were all put in place, the judge would go up and he would count the stones. If there were more black stones than white stones, the man was guilty. If there were white, more white stones than black stones, he was set free. He would count those stones and then he'd make the announcement, the man has the black stone if he was guilty. Or, the man has the white stone, he's set free. You know, when you and I got saved, we got a white stone. Amen. Man, we were guilty, condemned to die, under bondage, the wrath of God abiding on us every single day. But thank God I've got a white stone right now, been set free. Not only, does it talk about, not only does it talk about acquittal, but what about this? It talks about achievement. They say a runner in a race who would win that race back in these days of the Olympics, they would reward him with a white stone. When that man would go back to his home city, that white stone was like his free pass for whatever he wanted. He could go to any business and flash that white stone and he'd get what he needed. He could go to the marketplace and flash that white stone and get food for free. Anything he wanted, that white stone got him supply. Why? Because it was a symbol of victory achieved. Faithfulness, what's it get you? Faithfulness, what do we have in Christ? Here's what we have. Thank God we've got acquittal. I'm not guilty anymore. But thank God I've also gotten, it's not even my victory, he won the victory for me. But I'm glad I've got achievement. i got everything I need, access to everything I need in Christ. It's worth it to be faithful. And then I like this, it stood for association or acquaintance. They said another thing with these white stones is when men would enter into a bond of friendship, a relationship with one another. They would take a square white stone and they would write each other's names on that stone. One man would write his name on this side, the other man would write his name on that side. Then they would take that stone and break it down the center. And they'd exchange sides with one another. If you read Revelation 19, the Lord comes back, he has a name which no man knoweth. What's on this stone? A name that no man knoweth. I think he said, I'm going to put my name on you. 
they would exchange sides of that stone and one friend would have a stone for the rest of his life with his friend's name on it and the other man, you could say it like this, he'd have his name over here and that fellow had his name up there. You ever heard that song? There's a new name written down in glory and it's mine. Oh yes, it's mine. My name is in the book of life. Oh bless the name of you. You remember those songs? You've heard those songs? Here's what would happen. Those friends could part and not see each other for many years. One friend could come in need and all of a sudden show up unannounced. But if he had that stone, he'd have access. And he'd be welcomed in that man's home. Because one day, that man welcomed the other fellow into his home. I mean, think of it like this. Maybe one man was on a boat crossing the ocean. And as he's crossing the sea, maybe there's a shipwreck and he loses everything he has. But in his pocket is that stone with that man's name on it. He floats to the other side. He makes it to the other shore with nothing but that fellow's name on that stone. It's all he's got. He shows up at his door and he says, I've got nothing left. I've lost it all. But I've got that stone with your name on it. And he'll be welcomed in that man's home because one day that fellow had welcomed him into his home. Right now, thank God, there's a book of life and my name's written in it. But I'm also glad that I got the Holy Spirit of God inside of me who's the earnest of my salvation. He's the stamp of approval on my salvation. I've got his name on me. And thank God one of these days I'll be welcomed over there because there was a day by grace I welcomed him over here. It's worth it to be faithful. Now all this hinges, and I'm close on this statement in verse 17. Watch what it says, the very first verse. This is a great letter. It's full of encouragement, admonition, correction, but it's worthless unless you meet the criteria in this first phrase. He that hath an ear, let him hear. God is always speaking. But the truth of it is, we're not always listening. God is always trying to say something to us. He's trying to speak to us about service. He tries to speak to us about sin. He tries to speak to us about salvation when we're lost. He tries to speak to us about the steps he'd like us to take in life. But I'll tell you what the key is, if we're going to see revival in our church, if we're just going to have God be rich and real in our life, we're going to have to have an ear to hear. Don't you think over the last three months God was trying to tell you something? Don't you think with all the negative things in our world right now, God is trying to tell us something? With all the compromise in Christianity today, don't you think God is trying to say something? I tell you what we need, church, ears to hear the voice of God. Can't marry up with the world. I don't do this because he does it. I hope we don't do this because they did this in the 50s. Hello? I hope we do it because we don't want to look like the world, act like the world, talk like the world, or be like the world. Because the Bible tells us not to. I'm going to pray the altar be open. When's the last time you heard God speak? If you've not heard his voice in some time, why don't you come to this altar and ask him why? Get your heart right with God tonight. I want to hear him. He still speaks. I'm glad I know his voice. Brother Galvon, why don't you come? Would you play maybe I've decided to follow Jesus or something? That'd be great. Lord, I pray you'd speak to hearts tonight. I pray for our church. Thank you for our church family. We get to serve God together. And I'm glad we have some faithful Christians in our church. What a testimony of faithfulness in this place. And I know I'm newer than most here. I pray you'd help us just to stay faithful, please. Help us not to change, not to compromise, not to get married up with the wrong things. Help us to be pure so that we might have power to serve you.
God, we need to hear from you tonight. I pray for revival in our nation, but most of all in our church, I pray for revival. So good to be back, but God, we want to get back. We want to get back into the spirit of church. Please move tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. The altar is open. Would you come? When's the last time you used an altar? It's open now. When's the last time you heard the voice of God? When's the last time God spoke to your heart about something and it wasn't just another service or business as usual or just showing up and heading out? And all of us, I do that sometimes. I don't want that. Oh, I want to be, I want to be in tune with Him. I want to hear His voice. There's a reward, all these churches, if they overcome. And I'm glad that greater is he that's in me than he that's in this world. So you, you can overcome it. You don't have to bow to it. You don't have to be overtaken with it. We can overcome. We have victory. We're on the winning side. We don't just sing that to sing it. It's true. We're on the winning side. Why don't you pray? Some of you men, let's start seeking God. Men's prayer meeting, but throughout the week, seek God. Let's ask God to intervene, to do something in our day. I try not to watch too much of the news, but because of doing radio and things, I read a lot of it. And honestly, politically, and just with what's going on, I don't know how much longer we're even going to have opportunity to have church this way if God doesn't intervene. We've been shut down for a virus, but we might just get shut down because of whatever, social reasons or whatever. We better make the most of our space of grace, our window of opportunity right now. The world behind me, the cross before me. And then, no turning back. No turning back. The finish line is too close to turn back. Preacher, why don't you come? Thank you for listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. For more information about our ministry or to find out how to get in contact with us, visit our website at nvbc.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.